2 Chronicles chapter 25, we're going to talk about the talkative king, King Amaziah. Now, this is, Lord willing, we won't be, um, well, I won't say that because that's probably the kiss of death. I would say it won't be long. This will be a short message, but that usually means it's a long one. So King, king Amaziah is a fascinating king to me. Um, a lot of the reason is because he, it's proclaimed right at the beginning of chapter 25, his problem. But it doesn't look like it's his problem. But then as you keep listening to his story, you realize, oh, that is his problem. So look at Second Chronicles chapter 25, verse 1. It says this, Amaziah, he became king when he was 25 years old. He reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadun, something like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not getting any bonus points for names today, evidently. She was from Jerusalem. Now he, Amaziah, did what was right in the Lord's sight. You stop there and you've got this, oh, it's going to be a good story. He did what was right in the sight of God, but not wholeheartedly. Oh. Let's, let's continue to verse 3. As soon as the kingdom's kingdom was firmly in his grasp, he executed his servants who had killed his father, the king. But he didn't put their children to death. Like, that's a bonus point. Because as it's written in the law in the book of Moses where the Lord commanded, fathers aren't to die because of the children and children aren't to die because of the fathers, but each one will die because of his own sin. And so, so stop there for a moment. What you have is Amaziah is a king who did good things, just not with a whole heart. And, and it does. I'm telling you, when you start studying all these kings, it can get discouraging, can it? To be like, man, what, what, where is the one king that's going to stand up and have humility and, and no blemishes and, and do what's right? And, and really, we need to go back and remind ourselves that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when Hannah was rejoicing over the gift that was her son Samuel, she pretty much laid out the outline for the time of the kings. She said, Lord, this is, this, we, we need humility. We need to approach all of these things with great humility. And so what we need to look for in our leader is is a spirit of humility. And, and we need to remember that as much as our kings are going to mess things up, because they're certainly going to mess things up, and as bad as things go, we need to remember that God is still in charge. And then we need to remember, as we're discouraged because we are looking at a bunch of non-humble kings who continue to mess things up and challenge God, what we need to remember is ultimately, one day there will be a king like no other. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His name's Jesus. And so as you read these stories from the kings, be, be encouraged. That's the point. It's supposed to bring up this holy unsatisfaction in your soul with these men. As should when you look at your pastors and your leaders. You should find a holy dissatisfaction because we aren't that king. There is one, and his name's Jesus. And so use that to drive you to the, to the foot of the cross. All right, Amaziah then, again, the, the nuts and bolts of his story, he decides that he's going to attack this, this country called Edom, which has kind of oppressed him throughout his whole reign. It says in verse 5, Amaziah gathered Judah, and he assembled them according to ancestral families, according to commanders of thousands, and according to commanders of hundreds. He numbered those 20 years old or more for all Judah and all of Benjamin. He found there to be 300,000 fit young men who could serve in the army. Not too bad. They could bear spear and shield. But he didn't think he had enough. So, verse 6, for 7,500 pounds of silver... He hired 100,000 valiant warriors from Israel. However, 
A man of God came to him and said, King, do not let Israel's army go with you because the Lord is not with Israel, all of the Ephraimites. But if you go with them, well, go ahead and do it. Be strong for the battle. But God's going to make you stumble before the enemy. For God has the power to help or to make one stumble. Amaziah said to the man of God, okay, then what should I do about the 7,500 pounds of silver I gave them? And the man of God replied, the Lord is able to give you much more than that. So, so let me, let me kind of explain what's going on. It gets a little confusing if you forget that Judah and Israel are two separate nations. And the king we're looking at, Amaziah, is the king of Judah. And, 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 and he has decided to attack Edom. And he has decided in that attack he doesn't have enough soldiers. So he's going to hire 100,000 mercenaries to come alongside his, his men and to help them in the battle. Not a bad plan. And he has to pay said mercenaries, so he pays them about 7,500 pounds of silver, which is, we'll talk about that in a few moments. So he pays them, and then this man of God, we have no idea who he is, approaches Amaziah and says, whoa, whoa, whoa time out, time out. You don't want to go into battle like that, king. There, there's two reasons why you don't want to go into battle. It says this in verse 7, because the Lord isn't with them. Okay, just so you know, it doesn't mean God didn't show up to an appointment. If God isn't with you, you know what that means, right? God's against you. And so he's like, king, king, time out, time out, time out, rethink this. Do not do this. God is against those people. So a quarter of your military will actually have God fighting against it, and those are not really good odds at all. And then he says this, the other reason that you need to rethink this, the other reason you shouldn't do this is because, the end of verse 8, God has the power to help or to make one stumble. You don't need them. See, God's not with them, and if God's on your side and he's walking alongside you, then, then God is powerful enough to take care of all the details himself. You don't need more help. It's interesting when you hear Amaziah's concern. I mean, come on, how many of us would not have that concern? Okay. However, these mercenaries have a no-refund policy. I gave them 7,500 pounds of silver. What am I going to do about that? And Amaziah's response is, God's able to give you much more than that. Now, let me, let me be clear. That's not a prosperity statement. That's not saying, don't, no, you just rely on God and you watch the prophets ro- ro- roll in and your returns will, will just continue to double and triple and, and, and then your bank account will grow. That's not what, what, what the prophet here is saying to Amaziah. He's rebuking us who are so invested in our sinful rebellion that even when our sinful rebellion is pointed out to us and the next step is obvious and clear, We still are in paralysis because we're not sure what to do. Is it really worth it to repent? I mean, I'm going to lose. So so think about it in in your own way. So so is it really worth it for me to go back? I mean, I, I, I spoke a very angry word. Is it worth it for me to go back and apologize for that? I mean, I lose a little. I mean, uh... I lied, and, and, and I need to make that right, but is it really worth it for me to go back and take care of that lie? I stole. Is it, is it really worth it for me? I mean, think about this. If I go and do the right thing, the consequences are going to be, if you go and do the right thing, the consequences are going to be in God's hands, right? 
So if you believe that God is good and God is gracious, then you do what is right. You obey and you leave the consequences in his hands. And you know what? Yes, there are consequences to your sinful choices. Grace doesn't mean a removal of all consequences. Grace means the very presence of God with you through those consequences. God is able to do much more than that. You want to know what it looks like to be a man who is wholeheartedly after God? You want to know what it looks like to be a woman who is wholeheartedly after God? You do what God tells you to do and you leave the results up to God. Don't we have a way of noodling around all the details and figuring out what the best outcome could be? And if I do this, this, that, this, this, and this, and skip this, and don't do that, then this will happen. It'll be wonderful. And the reality is the reason God laid out his plan for you in his word is that you would obey it. And he says, here, here's why I'm telling you to do it that way. Because then I'm in it with you. And the consequences turn out far better than if we try to go it alone. Look at verse 10. Story continues. So Amaziah makes the hard decision, but he makes the right decision. And he releases the division that came to him from Ephraim to go home. But those mercenaries got very angry with Judah, and they returned home in a fierce rage. Okay, so you got them. Now flash back to Amaziah here. Amaziah, he strengthened his position and he led his people to the Salt Valley. He struck down 10,000 Syrites and the Judites captured 10,000 alive. They took them to the top of a cliff where they threw them off and all of them were dashed to pieces. A little violent, now flash back to the mercenaries. As for the men that Amaziah sent back so they, wouldn't, so they would not go with him into battle, those men raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon, struck down 3,000 of their people, and took a great deal of plunder. So, the, so you have two things happening here. So the man of God appears to Amaziah and says, don't let them come with you. God is not with them, and God is more than enough to take care of you in that battle. Amaziah makes the hard right choice to release those men, even though he's already given them 7,500 pounds of, of silver. And, and, and you would think that would be enough. Why? Why were they so angry? Why were the mercenaries so irate? Why were they so enraged? Well, if you're talking 100,000 soldiers, and if, let's say, this is going to be very liberal, so just know that, that the 7,500 pounds of silver in today's dollars, if it's a strict pound of silver, that totals up to be about $1.6 million worth of silver. It's a lot of money, right? Divide that by 100,000 soldiers. How much does each guy get? 16 bucks. You know why they're so angry? Because they just got gypped. They weren't counting on that money that Amaziah had given to them to make them rich. They were counting on the plunder from the battle to fill their pockets and stuff their coat with all the goods that they found after they won the victory and go home with that. That's where the real money was. And they're livid that they got cut out of the deal. And so they raid a bunch of the cities that are in Amaziah's kingdom in order to make up the money that they thought they deserved. Amaziah does. He goes against Edom. He has a great victory. It's this amazing thing that happens. And, 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 and you almost get this, this sense that, okay, things are interesting in Amaziah's life, right? I mean, he's not wholeheartedly devoted to God, but things are going well until verse 14. When Amaziah came back from the attack on the Edomites, he brought their gods with him, and he set them up as his gods. 
He worshiped before them and burned incense to them. So the Lord's anger was against Amaziah and he sent a prophet to him. Let me stop for a second. This is bizarre. So he goes against this people who are worshiping these idols over here like, oh, would you please protect us from Amaziah? He's coming any moment. Would you please protect us from Amaziah? Amaziah comes in with his men, wipes them out, and what does Amaziah do? He picks up the idols that were completely impotent to protect those people. He brings them home, he sets them up, and he begins to worship them. Brilliant, right? Right? I mean, that just makes all the sense in the world. And so what God does is he sends a prophet, again, unnamed prophet, to the king. And, and the prophet says this, the middle of verse 15. He says, why have you sought a people's gods that couldn't rescue their own people from you? How does Amaziah respond to a rebuke? Well, we already saw it once with the man of God coming to him, Right? And he's heard him say, okay, well, what am I going to do about the money? Oh, God's boy, okay. And he makes the hard right choice. But here, there's a completely different response. This one is not marked by humility. As the prophet is saying this, how, why have you sought a people's gods that couldn't rescue their own people from you? While he was still speaking, verse 16, the king asked, um, excuse me, have we made you the king's counselor? Stop talking. Why should you lose your life? So the prophet stopped. This makes me laugh. Because you get this picture in your head, right? The king is not happy. He's being confronted by this prophet. So, so the king's response is, wait, wait, wait. Did I ask you? Um, may I make a suggestion? Stop talking. I'd hate to have to kill you today. And the prophet stops talking and leaves the room. But you picture him making this last comment over his shoulder as he leaves the room. Well, I um, know God intends to destroy you. Just saying. The prophet says, God's going to destroy you for two reasons. One, because you're worshiping these false idols, because you've done this. And two, because you didn't listen to my advice. Because you stopped listening. You just bought yourself judgment. You bought yourself judgment because it's obvious that you're not wholeheartedly committed to God alone. And when you were confronted with the truth, you ignored it. Folks, this is a little aside, and I don't have a ton of time for it, so let me just throw this at you. When, when truth comes to you, you have to make a choice to either receive it or reject it. Too often, when God's truth comes to us, we think God is chasing us down to destroy us, to spank us, to whoop us, when in fact, oftentimes, God is chasing us down to save us. How do you respond when truth is spoken into your life? Is it with that spirit of humility? Or is it like Amaziah just wanting to shut it up? So Amaziah is now angry and his arrogance is seen and he decides that he's going to go after Israel, the host country of those mercenaries because of what they did to him. And so he, <laughs> look at verse 17. This, I gotta tell you, this is one of my favorite, this week I'm like, I love this part. So yeah, I'm not supposed to spend a lot of time on it, so hope you brought lunch. Verse 17, King Amaziah of Judah, he took counsel and he sent word to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel. So he's king of Judah, that's Amaziah. He is talking to the king of Israel, uh, Je Je <laughs> try that again, Jehoahash, Jehoash, there we go. And this is what Amaziah says, come, let's meet face to face. Oh, that sounds kind, Right? Come on, let's, 
Let's get together for coffee. No, that's, that's not what this means. Let's, let's, let's have a global summit. Nope, doesn't mean that either. Matthew 18, perhaps, brother against brother. Nope, this has nothing to do with diplomacy. This is the old-fashioned, when class lets out, let's meet out back. Let's come meet face to face. And Jehoash's response is awesome. Because what Jehoash does is he uses a little kid's story to get Amaziah to understand what a dumb choice that would be. So let me, let me tell you the story. It's found here. Um, they're starting in verse, it looks like verse 18. It, it goes, 18 is pretty much the whole story. So let me, let me, I asked a friend to illustrate the story for us. So I'm going to put this up here just because I think it helps a little bit. Jehoash introduces us to this, this wonderful man. His name is Mr. Thistle. Mr. Thistle is an angry little thistle, okay? He, he thinks he is the toughest of the tough. He looks around the forest. He's like, I am the thistle. I mean, there's no one like me. I am the thistle. And one day, Mr. Thistle approaches this fellow named Mr. Cedar. And he stands in front of Mr. Cedar and he says, give me your daughter so my son can marry her. I mean, it's a pretty braggadocious, confident thing for Mr. Thistle to say, particularly if you consider how small Mr. Thistle is compared to Mr. Cedar. In fact, in case you can't see it on the picture, maybe this will help. That's Mr. Thistle. That's Mr. Cedar. So actually, if you think about it, Mr. Thistle saying, give me your daughter so my son can marry her, probably sounded a lot more like, give me your daughter so my son can marry her. I mean, okay, you got the little man thing going. So the little dude, he's there, he's arguing, give me your daughter so that my son can marry her. Now, Mr. Thistle continues to lay it on pretty thick. Lots of threats, lots of arrogance, name-calling, challenging Mr. Cedar's ability to fight, and through it all, Mr. Cedar pretty much just took it all because, come on, he's a cedar, and this little dude is just a thistle. Lots of talk, not a lot of potential action. Mr. Thistle's getting more and more amped up. Mr. Cedar's getting more and more amused with this whole thing. And in the middle of Mr. Thistle, like, no, I'm serious. You give me your daughter. My son wants to marry you. Then you give me. And he's like, you better give me your daughter or else I'll. And this crazy thing happened. An animal walked by and stepped on Mr. Thistle. <laughs> Jehoash's story is about that. <laughs> You have said, look at me, I have defeated Edom. And you have become overconfident that you will get glory. Now, Amaziah, stay home. Why stir up such trouble so that you fall and Judah falls with you? I mean, the point of his story is awesome. You think you're something because you beat the Edomites. But that's like beating the Cleveland Browns. Everybody does it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> really? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, really not, actually. You're right. Good call. So, <laughs> you're right. Lord, forgive me for lying. Thank you. Amen. So, the message is real simple. It's just stay home. Amaziah, I'd hate to see you get hurt. And how does Amaziah respond? Look at verse 20. Amaziah would 
not listen. But this turn of events was from God in order to hand them over to their enemies because they went after the gods of Edom. So King Jehoash of Israel advanced. He and King Amaziah of Judah met face to face at Beth Shemesh that belonged to Judah. Judah was routed before Israel. Each man fled to his own tent. King Jehoash of Israel captured Judah's King Amaziah, son of Joash, son of Jehoahaz at Beth Shemesh. Then Jehoash took him to Jerusalem. He broke down 200 yards of Jerusalem's wall from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. He took all the gold, silver, all the utensils that were found with Obed-Edom in God's temple, the treasures of the king's palace, and hostages. And then he went returned to Samaria. And the sad conclusion of Amaziah's life, verse 25, he lived 15 years after the death of Israel's king Jehoash, son of Jehoaz. The rest of the events are, from beginning to end are written in the book of Kings. From the time Amaziah turned from following the Lord, a conspiracy was formed against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. However, men were sent after him to Lachish, and they put him to death there. They carried him back on horses, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. So, so when you get to the conclusion of Amaziah's life, what you find is instead of victory, there's defeat. Instead of this royal building program, the walls of Jerusalem are destroyed. Instead of wealth from people in surrounding nations, he's plundered and things are stolen out of his palace. Instead of this large, happy family, hostages were carried away from him. Instead of loyalty and long life, there's conspiracy and assassination. And it all goes back to the beginning. He did what was right, just not with a whole heart. So in closing, I just want to throw three things up here real quick for you. The first one is this. What does it look like to, to have a whole heart? Let me, let me phrase that differently. What did it look like for him not to have a whole heart? It looked like this. He counted on others to do what only God could do. He counted on those mercenaries to step in when, in fact, God was the one who was going to win the victory. You got to remember, we talked about it a little bit as we prayed. Your well-being is in God's capable hands. It's not in the size of your army. Your well-being is in God's capable hands, not in the brilliance of your plan or the wisdom of your advisors. Your well-being is in the hands of a good and sovereign God. And as weak as you may feel at times, God's strength is magnified in you. So he depended on others to do what only God could do. He depended on other gods to do what only God could do. Isn't that amazing? Why bow to something that isn't able to provide or protect other people? It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you see it in the story and it's as plain as the nose in your face. It's like, man, that was a foolish choice, but we do it every day. Why do we run after things that don't satisfy other people? I mean, there's, there's extremes on this. There's, there's some everyday things like, you know, I'm going to run after um, financial success or career success, people pleasing, ease of life. Those are going to be, I love God, but I really like ease of life too. But you see people who have attained to those things, both professionally and personally, and it, and it leaves them empty. Uh, I don't have time for this, but that's okay. There was a 60 Minutes interview back in 2006, 2007, um, where the, um, they interviewed, I know this is going to surprise you that I know this, Tom Brady. But as they were talking about to, to Tom Brady and asking him questions, he makes this comment they're like, so, so how does it feel having won Super Bowls after being so long down on the draft list? How does it feel to be that guy? And he's like, you know, I'm going to shoot very straight with you. As I look at my Super Bowl rings, which is a little arrogant, but that's okay. As I look at my Super Bowl rings, the thought that crosses my mind is this. There's got to be more than this. 
So you succeed as much as you want, but when you make that success your level of, that's, that's where happiness is. You know what happens? That happiness line just keeps getting ratcheted up higher and higher and higher. Keep pursuing it, and you find emptiness. Keep pursuing the same things that people around you pursue. I mean, we watch other people run to alcohol, to, to drugs, to, to porn, to work. And all the while, they ignore the one who's supposed to be at the center of what they're doing, but they just keep crowding him to the side, to the edges, and then it leaves them empty. And we can look at that and be like, I can't believe they do that. I can't believe they do that. And then you know what we end up doing? Modeling our own lives after that. You're depending on something else to give you satisfaction that, that God alone can give you. I'll take it another step. Many times it's because it's whatever we gaze at the most. I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but, but the reality is we, we, if you're not dealing with hurts, if you're not dealing with the times you've been offended, if you're not dealing with the times that people have sinned against, you leave all those things unchecked. Oftentimes you end up repeating the same offensive behavior yourself. You know why that is? Because you're gazing at it and you become what you hate most. Being an angry person doesn't satisfy anything. Being disgruntled doesn't help soothe your soul. Don't run to the same gods that the world has and that they're calling weak. When you have a God to run to who can take care of every need you possibly have. The other thing that made him half-hearted and not wholehearted was this. He refused to hear the truth when it was spoken. He refused to hear the truth when it was spoken, the, the truth tellers in this story, you have the one at the beginning, he was telling basically the same message as the one uh, that, that confronted him after worshiping the false idols. It was the same message. God, God, what are you doing? God expects your whole heart. Everyone and everything else just a cheap imitation, and it's only going to leave you deflated and defeated. So, so, so leave those things and instead focus on God. Now, please understand this. I'm going to speak truth to you. But hear this first. I'm not saying that you seek truth and do it perfectly. You can't. You're broken. So, so, so what you need to do is celebrate your beautiful imperfection. You celebrate your weakness by focusing on his strength for us. Then there's no greater picture of your weakness and his strength for us than if you look at the cross. That's the picture of how broken you are. You are so broken that as God looked at you, he realized there was nothing you could possibly do to put yourself back into a peaceful relationship with him. And so God, being a gracious and loving God, looked at you and said, that one is so broken, I'm sending my own son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty so that we can be brought to peace together. You, you, want, you want to see weakness and strength of God in that weakness. You understand that, that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus came to die for us. He came to save sinners. Where you should have died, he died. This is a picture I can't get out of my head in the last few months. Where you should have died, Jesus came and pushed you out of the way. He died for you. He absorbed the full wrath of God. He paid the full penalty. He brought you peace with God as he rose again on the third day. But, but, but let me share this with you. Let me share truth with you. Just me speaking that over you doesn't make it so for you. You need to respond. It's not just applied to your account. It's a gift that needs to be received. 
And I'm going to tell you, you can receive it right now, right where you are. You don't need to stand up, jump up and down, jumping jacks, push-ups, any of those things. You need to run to the front of the aisle shouting hallelujah. What you need to do is where you are sitting in your heart of hearts, confess that you are a sinner and you need a Savior. What you need to do is right where you are right now, confess that Jesus Christ is God's Son who died where you should have died. And that your acceptance in God's eyes is possible and complete because of that payment that Jesus offered on the cross. His blood was enough to cover your debt, and he proved it, arising again on the third day. That's how you accept God's gift, by simply crying out with your heart, yes, yes, I trust Jesus. Do you? Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you, Father, for this place, this church, these people God, it is a a unique opportunity and blessing to be able to come to a place every week and to know that what the people want to hear isn't something that tickles their ears, but they want to hear truth. And so I thank you for that. I thank you that there are people sitting in this very room who don't even know why they're here. God, I pray you would reveal it to them in this very moment that, that the reason they're here is because you're pursuing them. And you're not pursuing them to whoop them. You're pursuing them to save them. So God, I pray in the quietness of our hearts right now that, that, that those who are part from you, that they would cry out from their heart that they're a sinner, that Jesus Christ came to die in their place, and that because of his finished work, they're at peace with you. And you proved it by, by Jesus coming back from death. Lord, would they cry out from the depths of their soul, yes. Yes, they want to be your child. And may the power and the beauty of the cross ring in their hearts and their ears as they leave this place. I pray that for all of us. God, may you open our eyes to the depth of love and mercy and grace that you've shown to each and every one of us. We ask these things because of what Jesus did for us. Amen.